Welcome to Bevel, the podcast extension of Canadian Interiors, the longest-running interior design magazine in Canada, published since 1964. I am host and editor-in-chief, Peter Sopchak. Bevel is a place where we step away from the photographs and talk with industry leaders and thinkers about interesting ideas and issues facing the design world today. Ask a designer what the role of a designer is, and you will get as diverse a spectrum of answers as you will designers. Is it one of creative expression or rigorously conducted research? Is it engineering over artistry or vice versa? Can it be everything all at once? Many designers will chafe even at that, saying not taking a position is part of the problem of our times. Designers taking a position, at times referred to as authorship, has always been fertile ground for debate between critics, theorists, educators, and practitioners. There are designers who shy away from authorship because they think of themselves as problem solvers, not a brand. Then there are those who believe designers are not merely mediators, not just part of an agency that suggests various options to the client, but in fact need a strong voice and make decisions. This is an attitude that can often be seen in opposition to the prevailing sentiment that design is all about collaboration. A collection of interviews and essays by editors Louise Schoenberg and Michael Kaethler in a new book titled The Autoethnographic Turn in Design gives me a good opportunity to explore these issues. In this episode of Bevel, I chat with Michael about making sense of phenomena in design often described as autoethnographic and how authorship fits into the discourse. As Michael says in one of his essays, autoethnography gives an authority to the designer as someone with something to say and a means to say it. It situates the designer at the heart of the research and connects this position to the culture of design and the broader cultural realm. Michael, it is great as always to have you on the show. And I want to say that you are the first, you have a unique opportunity or a situation to be the first to have uh, appeared on two Bevel episodes. So I want to say right out of the gate, thank you very much for uh, being generous with your time and getting together to talk about the book, the book, The Autoethnographic Turn in Design, um, which uh, I found fascinating. So uh, again, Michael, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, Peter. Thanks really for having me. And uh, it's really great to discuss um, not just over a two-minute soundbite, but getting uh, you know full slot to really engage with the book and to question it and uh, to have an interlocutor as yourself. So thanks a lot. So let's, uh, let's sort of jump off right at the very top here because I find a lot of what is brought up in the book um, uses language and relies on language to uh, to sort of shake the expectations of designers, the design community, uh, shake how we think of things, starting with the very phrase, um, autoethnography. And I'm going to completely steal a question that you used in one of your essays, uh, one of your interviews with uh, Hisham Khalidi, that uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm now going to turn around on you. How do you interpret autoethnographic design? I think that's a useful place to start because um, I think definitions and language is going to play a big role in this conversation. So how do you interpret autoethnographic design? Okay, well, it's, it's a good question. And it's a question that is repeated throughout the book in various forms. 
as, as the book is really trying to come to terms with a practice that we've been seeing. And by we, uh, I should say the book is a co-production uh, by myself and Louisa Scallenberg, who is a kind of a grand uh, lady of uh, Dutch design, um, an educator that's been quite prolific in uh, the last three decades, uh, primarily in the Netherlands, but also uh, in Germany, I think a little bit in France, Switzerland. And, and you know, the, the well, I guess, What's the, the best way to explain how I interpret the book? Maybe, and it is is to kind of um, take the listener through the genesis of the book, or how it came to be. And uh, would you permit me that, Peter? Can Absolutely. Have about a five minute uh, uh, rabbit hole journey uh, because I think it gives a bit of a context. Absolutely. No, I think actually starting at, as, as the saying goes, starting at the beginning is always the best place. And I was going to ask you this anyway, is sort of what the genesis was. So you're, you're jumping to that anyway for me. So yes, by all means, please okay. do that. Okay. Because yeah, it's, it's hard to, to, to offer a definition uh, when that de definition is always evolving. Uh, so uh, several years ago, I was reading this excellent, uh, actually, no, I'm going to go even further back. So a, as a design educator, for quite some years, I had some really lovely students whose work troubled me. It troubled me because I couldn't place it, couldn't position it. It was design, it used the language of design, it used the traditions, the methods of design, and yet it sat somewhere else. It sat in this kind of uncomfortable place on this border or fringe of art, design, maybe a little bit of anthropology. It was quite expressive deeply personal, uh, involved a lot of research, and, but it wasn't really one thing or the other. And I didn't know what to do with it, uh, the, these projects. And so I kind of just kind of put them aside in my head in this categoryless place and, and moved on. And, and it was years later when I'm reading this excellent article, um, three, 4,000 word um, little essay by Anne Galloway, who's an anthropologist from New Zealand. It's free online. called something along the lines of fantastic ethnographies and design, something like that. And I, I recommend anyone listening to, anyone listening to this to, to look it up. It, it inspired me to no end. Uh, I really loved it. it. It actually really kind of shifted my, my interest. I worked as an ethnographer for years, but never within design. It kind of brought those two worlds together for me. But she has this little caveat, this little sentence, which irked me. And she said something along the lines of, design is this you know, great home for ethnography, for almost all types of ethnography, except for auto-ethnography. And whenever I see someone kind of make a statement like, yeah, this all works except for this, I tend to want to prove them wrong. And in this case, it, it was no exception, but moreover, I used to do auto-ethnography in my, my previous studies at the university, and a little bit when I was a, a, a human rights researcher at the United Nations, I, I included a bit of auto-ethnography in my report writing. And so I was immediately kind of challenged by this. I was, I was provoked by this sentence, and I, and I thought about it a long time. I'm like, but you know what? Maybe what I've been seeing all these years of these deeply personal, these, these, these kind of artistic, poetic, inspired projects, maybe that's it. That's just a form of auto-ethnographic design. But what does that actually mean? 
And, and several weeks later, I, I got a call from Louisa Scalenberg and she was saying, Michael, Michael, look, I'm retiring and I would love to put a book together that looks at, you know, at, at the work I've been doing and, and, and the tradition. And, and I don't want to just kind of leave without having, you know, something that, that kind of brings together this, 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 this oeuvre uh, that, that's been, you know, developing, evolving for these, you know, two or three decades. And immediately all these three pieces just kind of fit. Because if anyone uh, is already familiar with her work, you'll know that it's just this, it, her, her, her work and what she presides over in terms of um, uh, the, the Masters of Connectual Design in Sonic Academy Eindhoven. She taught in uh, the Kubeke um, in, uh, in the Netherlands, in, in Germany, in uh, Germany, all kinds of different institutions. Is that she promotes a deeply poetic, kind of artistically inspired approach to almost arts and crafts. And, and I say arts and crafts because it's not conceptual. It's not artistic in a conceptual way. It's artistic in a really material, hands-on way. And, and, and that's so unique. And, and, and so these three pieces just kind of fit together beautifully. And so we decided that we would spend the next year and a half exploring to what extent has this work that she's been developing and, and, and the students that have kind of emerged from her tutelage, to what extent can that be considered autoethnographic? And, you know, what kind of language can we give it? Is that the right terminology? And, and, um, and how do we make sense of it? Because up till now, we haven't really had a language for it. And it sat a little bit uncomfortably. And that's thought it was a bad thing. But often, when you are producing something on the fringes, you're being bombarded by demands to define yourself, to prove yourself. And so we thought it was quite important at this point to perhaps give not just dignity, but uh, to give kind of a, 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 a barrier, a little bit of a protective zone so that projects can emerge in this type of, uh, it, projects can emerge in this kind of field of, of kind of this artsy, storytelling, um, highly materialized form of expression that's bound to research. And those are kind of the building blocks of it. And then so for, through this year and a half, we've been slowly evolving this notion of autoethnography. And so this now brings me to this question of how do I interpret it? And I mean, I guess the easiest way is to break upon the language or the terminology of, of autoethnography, auto being self. So is a highly subjective form of research, uh, ethno, uh, culture, so the worlds in which we live. We live in culture. That's, I don't mean high culture, I mean culture. Uh, that which is man-made, I guess you could say culture, uh, it's uh, in contrast to nature, even though I think that's perhaps a distinction. Um, you know, you could say we live in culture. And lastly, and this is where it takes a little bit of a diversion, maybe very strong diversion from traditional autoethnography is graphy. Now, uh, when we talk about autoethnography in the social sciences, it's usually a mode of writing about the self within culture. So writing about the self, it, it's often used by academics because they're the ones that are employing uh, ethnography usually, and they're writing about themselves. So it might be about uh, what it's like being a female academic in an all-male dominated uh, faculty, and it's using yeah writing as a mode of reflecting and trying to make sense of that. 
so you could say it's a little bit of uh, almost kind of like journaling. Um, and it's, um, yeah, there's different techniques um, to do so. Sometimes it's drawing and codified, other times it's more poetic. And, and, and when it came out, it was quite powerful within the field of ethnography because it was so subjective. And so for, you know, 150 years, ethnographers were going abroad. They were going to see the exotic other in places like Africa and Asia and so forth. And then they started realizing that perhaps we live in our own exotic world here amongst, you know, in the worlds that we inhabit. And actually, perhaps we as ethnographers are also exotic. And so we've done this shift from looking abroad to the other to realizing that perhaps we ourselves live within an exotic world and we ourselves are perhaps <clears throat> a type of other. And, um, and so the graphy, though, uh, to come back to this idea of writing and documentation, is, is where we diverge from the uh, kind of social science approach. And for, for them, writing is a way of reflecting and documenting. And for us, we don't want, we're not so interested in writing. We're interested in material production. So manipulating the material world. And in this, we, we find um, just documenting and reflecting is not enough. We, we want to generate. We want to create newness. And, and in doing so, we can also change the worlds we have. And so in short, I know it's a, it's a rather elaborate definition. It's really about the subjective self within culture and dealing with that culture through telling our, our reactions, our expressions, our stories vis-a-vis uh, -vis materiality. And, and I know this is, again, maybe this all sounds very highfalutin, high do you say? I'm not sure. Is, um, we, we tend to translate constantly um, when we, we interpret the world, for example, and we, we translate into writing. And what I think is really powerful about the autoethnographic turn in design is that we're asking designers to, or designers are doing this, they're, they're looking at the world, this material, the material elements of the world that influence, that shape them, and they're responding to those material elements vis-a-vis -vis materiality. And so they're staying on the same kind of language um, level to respond to and to actually change that very world that they're responding to. And so it's, it's a very generative, it's a very almost proactive form of engaging with the world that creates extremely powerful, poetic, individual, but I would also argue very communicative projects. So that's, that's a very long uh, summary. Is that relatively clear, Peter? I know that there's quite a lot there. Yeah, there is quite a lot there, and um, which is good. I mean, the the very notion of something as broad as uh, the self, and then as intimate as the objects you touch. I mean, the spheres and the the the, the scale in which you're talking about is broad. So there's nothing wrong with the explaining the phrase as being as having a broad explanation attached to it but what i find interesting and this was happening to me when i was reading the book and this happens to everyone consciously or unconsciously to most people it's unconscious but you know people like you and i uh who, who engage in the realm of the word we're aware that we're doing this but it's still an, uh, almost a, a knee-jerk reaction is when you're confronted with a word or a phrase you're unfamiliar with or you have a very you know ten at best a tangential awareness of you use words you are familiar with to help mm -hmm. as a starting point to yeah. unpack and define but the danger with that is sometimes you, you end up using the other word 
more than and it supplants the, the a proper usage of the phrase that you are unfamiliar with. And yeah. the reason I'm saying this is because I found myself quite often over the course of reading the book uh, mentally supplanting the word autoethnography or autoethnographic turn of design with the word authorship. Yeah. And I'm wanting to ask you about that because I'm wondering, does authorship fit into that sphere of autoethnography uh, in its, in relation to design at all? Or is that, is that going down? Is that chasing uh, a rabbit down the wrong hole? I, I found at times it was helpful to think of much of what you were describing or much of what the you know, interview subjects were describing as an exercise in authorship. But then I, I red flag went off in my head. And I was like, wait a minute, Peter, don't, don't get comfortable. All right. That authorship carries baggage, which I want to get into in a minute. Um, and it might not apply here. So let's, let's first see if it does. So this is what I wanted to ask you. How much yeah. is, is it interchangeable or is it, is it a dangerous sort of um, uh, almost like, a, like a, a, one of those viruses that mimics, uh, you know, it, it mimics the phrase just to get in there and, and subvert it, but really it's not the same thing. I think it's a very good question. And it's something we grappled with quite a lot. And, and Louisa felt, and I, I, and I completely supported her on this, that, yeah, it resonates a lot with the work. They all fit within, you know, an overall umbrella term of authorship, the, the works in the, in the book. That, so for the listener, the, the center of the, of, of the book is about 18 um, projects, or maybe, yeah, maybe closer to 20, actually, um, that we use as kind of the, the, the defining point. These were, uh, we, we want to think through practice. And not and not uh, through theory. So we'd use practices and projects, kind of, uh, the parameters for developing these ideas, and and they all fit within the the topic of authorship. The problem is that authorship is so broad that almost all a lot of design that's emerging today in in continental design schools can also be situated under authorship. And the difference for us is that autoethnography is going a lot deeper. It's not just about putting your name on something. It's not just about celebrating design beyond the anonymous designer and saying, yeah, okay, there is uh, a person behind the design. It's much more about the research that goes into it. And so we wanted, I mean, we're borrowing that language from the social sciences. It's a, it's a you know, very dominant, well, relatively dominant form of, uh, of research, this idea of, of autoethnography. And we're saying, well, look, design is not just, this type of design is not just expression. It's not just authorship. It's not just someone saying, this is what I feel and I'm going to make it like this. This is someone looking deep within the self and trying to understand what the relationship is between a certain type of material, a context, uh, a scenario and the self and, and exploring that, trying to understand the self and trying to understand culture through that relationship. And so it's not about production. It's not about producing some expression uh, necessarily for the world, but it's much more concerned with trying to understand something. And that's why we borrowed a, a terminology that, that is really rooted in research and, and, and not so much about, um, yeah, cultural production. Authorship is, is most closely associated with film and literature and, and producing, you know, novels, uh, for example, poetry and, and whatnot, which sits closer to the arts. 
And I think the, the concern with authorship is that it becomes more about expression for expression sake. And, and we feel, while well, that's great, that's lovely, this type of design, it's a lot more grounded and it's a lot more, I would argue, reflective. Well, okay, you brought something up uh, a few times that I recognize both in the book, but the fact that you brought it up, I think, um, really shines a light on on sort of the differences between the terms that we're using. You you reference research, uh, and I think that's important. And I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that a few times because I think that if that really is the differentiator between uh, a more prosaic form of authorship, vis almost like vis-a-vis -vis branding, um, versus something as you say more authentic. Um, in, in autoethnographic pursuits, then I want to I want to drill into that because I want to know what you mean by research. What what and and where what does the research um, uh, reveal? But before we get to that, I just want to say something about authorship because I've been thinking about authorship a lot. Um, actually, I've been thinking about authorship for for a long time, even beyond. Um, being uh, for it being reminded uh, in uh, when when reading your book, you know, because I mean, authorship is is a loaded word. I said this a minute ago that it, it comes with a lot of baggage. You know, there's there's those that um, that look at so if, if a designer claims the mantle of authorship, then there's others on this uh, other side of the aisle that look at them as, as just raging narcissists. You know, <laughs> it's like people yeah. who just, who, who love to see their name on everything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's designers who, who go out of their way to avoid being labeled as, uh, as, as authors or as, uh, as having authorship. You know, they just want to be seen as problem solvers. In fact, they almost don't want to be seen at all. They have a, this idea that a true designer, it, it should almost be um, mm -hmm. like the, the, the magic in the background. So pay no attention to the man behind the curtain kind of yeah. thing. Um, and I've always found that debate. I've always found that dynamism, you know, those two forces coming together, interesting. I've never really understood why sometimes it becomes a fight. I understand that branding is a dirty word and apparently no one likes it except when it works for them, <laughs> you know, except yeah. when they can get really successful and become filthy rich because they were somehow hit on a brand that, that works and resonates with, uh, with consumers. But I just, I've never, I don't know, part of that uh, friction has, has always made me scratch my head because how, I don't see how the two cannot overlap. I don't see how you can't, be an an author with a, and have a voice and say what you want to say, but then also be solving problems for people. I don't see how those two are mutually ex exclusive. Um, you know, I, I, I want to interrupt because I think, yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. I mean, that's, again, it's really hard to talk about, to talk about authorship unless we really define what we mean. But I think, yeah, you kind of hit something on the head here. And that is... Um, how do we address something external unless we begin to also understand our, our, our jumping off point ourselves? It's like, so to me, it's, it's really, it's, it's like having a, a psychotherapist who has never undergone psychotherapy themselves. You know, or like, it, 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 it's, uh, how, do we, how do we solve a problem in the world when we are, you know, littered with problems that we cannot address, that we're not even aware of? 
And I think there's this element in design and it irks me to no end. It's that arrogance of design always going out to the other. And that's this, this, this element that reflects anthropology and it's kind of colonial spirit of going to the exotic other in Africa to go study them when they had exotic others living right underneath them in that tenement building or in their own living room, or they themselves are the exotic other. And I, I think that's exactly kind of the point paper that I'm trying to make is that, you know, designers are constantly going to this other, designing these objects for some, in, some, some, some imaginative other when, when they're not designing objects for themselves because they don't even understand who they are and their own relationship to materiality. Well, I want to use this moment now to sort of go in the direction I was I, I mentioned I was wanted to go to a minute ago, the issue of research. I really want to know what you mean by that because again, you know, the uh, you know, when somewhat inflected by the 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 you know, the 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 baggage of terms like authorship, you know, you, you get designers who, who create products and you can recognize that product a mile away as that's that person that that's, you know, that that's a so-and-so's product, but that doesn't mean that they didn't research uh, elements of materiality, uh, functionality, you know, it's not, there's not some kind of uh, science added to that element of the self of, of author. So I'm, I, I, this is kind of what I want. I need you to sort of help me understand a bit more the the research side of things. What differentiates research as it relates to autoethnography? Right? What what type of research is a designer going uh, pursuing, or what research tools are they using on that side of the equation that then leads to what you're in essence what you're saying a more authentic. I don't know if I'm misquoted. I, I, I always hate it when I say more authentic and authentic. Those are complicated words in and of themselves. But oh, no, I, continuing I, I, what we're talking about, like use what it, what what research tools and what is it about the research that creates uh, a, a, an output or an outcome that more fits in what you're t in the realm of what you're talking about is autoethnographic. Auto yeah, I, I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a really good question, and I, I don't think anyone's ever asked me to define research, so I'm not gonna. It's it's such a big field, and ten, we tend when we think of research, and it's funny because I actually teach um, right now. I'm teaching a course on redesigning uh, design research, so um, and, and it's it's a lot of fun, um, and I'm, I'm personally very much against the development of, of kind of ossified methodologies. I guess my, my response to you, instead of defining research itself, is to say that process in these projects, I would say, is 90% about understanding and maybe only 10% about production. And so the intention when they, these designers are producing something is not an object, it's not an artifact, it's not something that's even materialized but it's very much the process of understanding. And I think that to me would be how I would, you know, loosely define research is simply the process of understanding something. And so I think that's where it's a lot different than authorship where, and again, it's hard to talk about authorship because it's such a loose term, but that the interest is not in production. It's simply understanding material and the self. 
So I'm, I, I, and, I, and, and with that comes an element of, of humility, of modesty, which you don't find in authorship. And I, I think an, an example for me, as some of you of these former students who did work, which kind of troubled me, is, is Thomas Nathan, who's a, a German designer, uh, who has this really strong internal tension. Um, and when I met him, you know, he just talked about being, you know, kind of riven in two by this desire on one hand to make, as he said, you know, we are homo faber, you know, humans that make, that's in our DNA. We are, that's, that's, that's what defines us on one hand. And on the other hand, he says, you know, we, we live in a world that has too many designed objects. We live in a world that's just too full of, of, of shit. It just, you know, we're, we're, it's polluted by, by, by what designers have produced. And so for him, he went on this grand journey, internal journey, to understand whether or not he needs to design and to what extent is the minimum, what is the minimum that he can design and still be this homo faber. And so he spent about a year and a half exploring basically not designing until he came to the conclusion that he can just take these little balls of clay and roll them between his fingers, take a mold for a cup, a bowl, a plate, and he just presses one, makes another bowl, presses the next one in there. It takes about four hours, and he can make a little bowl, and then he fires it, and he has this object, and it's a design object. But in fact, the vast majority of the work is him simply reflecting on what it means to be a maker. And, and it was not about creating an object. This was the object was in a sense the materialization of his thoughts, of his own personal exploration into this conflict of making in an age uh, of crisis, you could say economic and ecological crisis. And, and in the end, we have this object that's extremely personal, it's beautiful. Each little ball of clay has his fingerprints. You could also argue this is kind of imbued accountability and 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 is that authorship you could say yeah it's definitely authorship but it's also something so much deeper than just authorship it's not just him trying to express that it's him trying to come to terms with being human in this world but when i when i hear you tell that story here's my reaction to that story my reaction to that story is while incredibly poetic and heartfelt it also is an extremely personal experience yeah meaning it was an it was a journey for him it his the 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 enlightenment that he came to um you know the the coming to jesus moment he had there after a year of not designing and then finally he takes some balls of clay and presses his thumb into it all right that moment didn't change design it didn't change the uh, product in any significant way it didn't change how humans interact with plates uh it didn't have any effect on supply chain issues uh it didn't have from for the most part i can from what i can tell didn't have any effect on labor issues right he didn't change the world he changed himself now there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not taking anything away from uh, if everyone changed themselves and the whole world would be changed. So you, that, there's that argument to be made. But yeah. I think it's relevant to say that it was intensely personal. Yeah. Intensely. Right. So 
I guess so. There, okay, so there's nothing wrong with that. It just <laughs> it's it's it, it you know for for an industry that is overwhelmed by the need to produce. You say you said it yourself, and it's even more it's it's even worse in the West. Like maybe uh, you know other markets like like Europe or you know elsewhere maybe aren't as uh, uh, faber crazy if I can create yep. a word uh, <laughs> as 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 the West is, as America is, but it, it, I, it, 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 I think it's also unfair of me to just dismiss the fact that that exists. I mean, this is an exercise in coming to terms with the self. Okay, so let's be clear then. In the West, uh, making things, and not just making things, but being successful at making things, right? The, the, the object, the successful creation of the object itself is a reflection of the success of the self. That's a very Western notion that is deeply rooted in the sense of self in the West. So it's hard for a designer to get away from that. How can they not worry about whether or not their product is going to be of uh, value in the market? Because the market, good old you know, capitalistic <laughs> mentality, the market dictates success. I could be as, as enlightened as I want, squeezing little balls of clay and making you know, plates with my thumbprint on it, but if no one buys it, I'm a failure. <laughs> At least that is one theory or one, one attitude uh, and a, a dominant one in, 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 you know, Western mentality. So, I mean, I just, you know, I, I say all yeah. that to just kind of cycle back to, okay, so if, if autoethnography is about an examination of self, then to take it back to my point about the research, is the research about making a better product or about making a better self? Okay, so okay, or, I, or both. Yeah. I have a feeling you're yeah. going to say both. I have a feeling there's going to be so much overlap here. It's, <laughs> it's art. It's art and science. It's self yeah. and market. It's all these things in one. Which yeah. oh, it drives but, but, me crazy. Okay, I, I know, but I get I get so uncomfortable when we talk about the market, and uh, because I feel like as soon as the market wades in on these things, it just kind of destroys the beauty. And, and I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I'm horrified by how the market determines what is good design, especially in North America, where Thomas has gone on and, and he, has, he does all kinds of design work. He lives, he's, he, he's a, a living, breathing designer and he makes extremely poetic work. And, and people in Germany and in Europe love his work. And it is very personal, but it also speaks to people. And that's what I think is so beautiful and profound is that, yes, it's not mass producible. Well, I suppose, yeah, maybe you could make a machine to, with your fingerprint on it. It would actually be kind of an interesting project. But like, it's, it, people see this and it resonates with them and, and how time was used and how reflection. And you know, he refused, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, to uh, listen to any podcasts or watch anything. You know, he just sat there in silence for hundreds and hundreds of hours making basically, uh, you know, tableware. And, and it's, it's, a very, it's, a, it's challenging. I think for most people, it's challenging to think of this as, as a process today in an industrial age. But it's very poetic and it's very, and it's very powerful. And, and there's another example uh, of, uh, in the book. I, I think this question of time is interesting because it, it it throws the middle finger up against the market because you can't you can't valorize time like this when when we talk about a bowl taking whatever eighty hours I mean no one's willing to spend what eight thousand euros on a bowl to to give him you know due um, compensation for his time 
Um, and, and so there's another project where, where she takes a, a rag from her family home. It was a, a curtain. Megan Clark, her name is um, uh, a beautiful, uh, well, she makes beautiful design. She's um, a British designer. And, and she took this uh, curtain that was then used as like a rag and then a cloth and like a painting drop cloth. And it was in her family for like 30 years. And then she took it apart with, by, you know, each thread she unwove this entire curtain and then remade it into this beautiful tapestry. But again, we're talking like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. And, and so this, this question of time, I, I feel like it's, it's a critique of so many elements of our culture, but, you know, in terms of acceleration, in terms of utilitarianism, but also a big part of that is the market and saying, you know what, these objects do not belong in the market. It's not where they, they belong. And, and they belong in society. They belong there to challenge us, to make us think about how we spend our time, how we valorize our time, what is meaningful. And, and it makes us look at objects in a totally different way. You, when you see you know, her work, you see this, this tapestry, this cloth, and it's, it's gorgeous, but you also realize what went into it. And then after that, it's hard to go home and see you know, these tapestry, the, the cloths that we throw out and, and not see them as potential for, for beautiful objects. If only, if only I could dedicate, you know, 200 hours of my life. It, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty strong provocation. True. Yeah. There's another element to this too that I found fascinating I want to bring up. Um, and it can, it can somewhat stem from the, the question of research. Uh, because to me, I mean, so much of research is about asking questions, having the, the freedom and the bravery to ask questions and then asking the right questions. Because as we yeah. all know, the yeah. answers we get are so much predicated on the questions we ask. That all being said, right, research is about asking questions and design definitely needs, designers need to ask questions and the, the process of design needs to be questioned. Boom, all that being said, uh, I'm going to now turn it around and say there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, a narrative in, that pops up in a few of the interviews in, in your book that really caught my eye uh, that really hammers home the notion that designers need a strong voice and to make decisions. And I'm going to reference one of my favorite interviews in particular from the book was Konstantin Grichich. Yeah. Um, now here, here's an interesting addition to the book. Here's someone um, who is is uh i should be careful here i don't want to i don't want to cast him in a light but the truth is that he he works in the market he's a successful designer who works in the market whose products are successful uh uh you know objects in the market that people have you could argue people have responded to because how else can he become mm -hmm. so successful so his interview um in the book was was great uh, and he doesn't shy away from cutting right to the quick on some of these issues. And so I'm, I'm going to read a quote of his that I want to get your feedback on. Designers are not merely mediators, not just part of an agency that suggests various options to the client. I consider not taking a position part of the problem of our times. Everything is always open. It could be this or it could also be that. I think we need more of it has to be one or the other end quote so i love that i mean that mm -hmm. uh, you know that that hit me in the solar plexus when i read that i was like ah, yes okay mm -hmm. Th this makes sense this i can relate to uh now in fairness 
other interview subjects took a different stance. I remember um, Ollie Stratford uh, wasn't as keen on that, uh, on, on being that clear about taking a stance. Uh, he doesn't like, he, he sees a problem with, between authorship and autoethnographic design because he thinks that authorship em emphasizes outwardship or outwardness, sorry, yeah. uh, and authorship doesn't make quite so explicit. Um, but anyway, Konstantin Grichich's point, what do you think of that? Taking, in, in essence, he's challenging designers that they need to take a stand. Ha he, he, he hates that it, this, it could be one or the other. It has to be one. <laughs> Needs to be more of it's this and not that. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I would very much side with him on this. And it's also, I, I think part of it actually goes back to education. And when you study design in most typical design uh, schools, uh, colleges, institutions, there's very little discussion around ideology, um, the role of design in shaping the world, uh, in power relations. And so designers end up being these kind of, uh, as you described them earlier, kind of this magical hand behind the scenes, invisible, often unaware completely of the unintended consequences or intended consequences of how they, of how they materialize of their work. And, and there's this feel, it's a safe place. And I think this is what's been problematic in design for so long is that not taking a position was a way of, of it's a bit of a lazy, it's a lazy place to be. And you can hide behind, you know, the, basically the engineering aspects of design, which was that design is there to find solutions and, and designers work off of a brief. And, but what happens if you, if designers don't have a brief and what happens if there's no market for design? You know, it's a, it's a, I find this question, I ask my students this all the time. So if you're not designing to solve a problem necessarily, and you're not designing according to a brief, what are you designing for? What would you do? How would you, I, I, you know, I would like to give you an assignment. You have one day to design something, but you're not, it's not to solve a problem and, and I'm not going to give you any assignment. And it's really, most designers, most of my students are really stumped by this. They, they, they struggle to think outside of, of being told basically what to do or allow the market to determine that for them. And I think this is, you know, at the, the core of the problem is that if we don't take a position, we're basically just supporting the status quo, you know, which is the existing power relations in society or the existing um, mean uh, modes of seeing things. And, and if we want to change something, we really want to alter something. We need to know what our position is. And, and that positionality, I mean, it, it, it's so key, but it's difficult because we're, we're exposed. And I think I mentioned this in my in, in the last podcast, and, and I'm really you know taken back. Hilda Heinen, the Belgian architectural theorist, uh, used to say like, that you know designers have one of the you know most powerful roles in society, you know more than a doctor, maybe more than a lawyer or a politician, because what we design lives in this world for more than a generation. It's multi generational, and it and, and these designs they, they they are responding to something but also echoing out and shifting things and, and, and altering other material relations and so by by not taking a position we're just reproducing all of these hierarchies and power structures and so i i really side with constantine Gutterchik, and i think it fits well with our discussion in terms of autoethnography is that 
you know, before we can go and make these big grand statements and, and start saying, you know, what we want in the world, we need to start understanding ourselves and to understand our own relationships with materiality and why we do the things we do. And, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go on here for another minute or two on the, on this, in this vein, but I found it fascinating when I would, we would choose these projects, which we found, Louisa and I found, were so autoethnographic. And then I would send an email to the designers and I'd ask them, hey, look, would you like to write something? This is what we're interested in. And they would write a text that was extremely uh, impersonal. So it would be like, basically, uh, I did this work because I thought this was interesting. <coughs> like, okay, what, what is interesting? What, what exactly about this is interesting? Why, like, interest is, it's such a, a, a way of shirking, uh, you know, uh, th this kind of a relationship. It's like saying, it, you know, oh, well, intellectually, it kind of like um, delighted me, you know? And, and uh, so I would then Skype them and we would discuss a little bit more about the project. And I felt like a psychotherapist. We would do one, two, sometimes three, four, five sessions until we started getting to the bottom of it. And, you know, they're not just making this object because it interests them. No, they're making this object because something happened when they were 12 years old or they went to a party once and they were so embarrassed by what happened that they, they needed to find a way to more to, to, to hide socially and they've never felt comfortably in these social situations. And I would say 30%, like I, I, I'll give you like an approximate number of the Skype sessions that I had led to tears. And that's both, you know, you know really talking about the, the origins of their designs. And, 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 and a huge part of that is that they've been trained not to think of what they do as personal. They've been trained to always look at externalities because, you know, that's what a designer does. And so when they talk about it, it's like, well, this is interesting. But in fact, at the core of what they're doing, a, a lot of the times, is this deep personal research. But then when they sell it to the, to the world, they, they extract themselves from it. And so I, I think, you know, when we talk about taking a position, yeah, I mean, I think design needs to start being clear about that, designers in general, and design as a field needs to start looking at what position, you know, is being taken right now. And how is it fitting within these, you know, larger systemic problems that we face as a society? And, and to do so, I think, you know, to do so, we need to begin with ourselves. I'll leave it there. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, what you're saying right there is uh, obviously very uh, timely, very on topic these days. Um, you know, taking ownership, really, really asking questions. Uh, we all have, you know, it's, it's, it's incumbent on all of us. Uh, what's interesting as it relates to the design field and designers in particular is how much design uh, you know, and, and this has been talked about a lot, so it's not like I'm saying anything new, but how much design is a byproduct of uh, the scientific method um, mentality of separating the observer from what's mm -hmm. being observed, uh, separating the experimenter from the experiment, separating the creator from the product. Design is a byproduct of that, has become a byproduct of that uh, with money problems, obviously. But what's interesting is, and you touched on this ever so briefly um you brought up the the reality of a brief 
and I'll, I'll attach a second word to that, the client, the client mm. in the brief. There, that is such an interesting part of this, of this um, personality uh, exchange going on here because it's not just does a designer, okay, let me rephrase it. I don't think it's just about does the designer have the discipline or the self-awareness enough to ask the deep questions and explore the self, explore themselves uh, and do all that. There's also an element expected of designers from clients of a certain magic. You said it yourself, the magic hand. I call it the ta-da moment. And mm -hmm. come on, be on like, let's be honest. Designers love the ta-da moment. They love it. They, they hate getting a, a wishy-washy brief, but they love going into their cave. They love designing their design, whatever it is, coming out with a, with a, a solution and going, ta-da, you know, the big reveal. And the client going, that's amazing. We could never have thought of that, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm talking. I'm talking to a lot of product designers these days, and they're they're begrudgingly saying, "Okay, that that is the joy you get, like the the jolt of energy you get from the tada moment, is not uh, as is not enough to offset the strain and the the under the undermining of working in a vacuum." working with no questioning, working without different uh, um, voices or different perspectives. Certainly, you know, not ask the perspective we're talking about, which is the inward one. Um, you know, designers are saying, yeah, this, this, isn't, this isn't cutting it anymore. But I keep, you know, I, I bring all that up because like, I find the relationship between client and designer fascinating. And it's always, it's always being re-examined, but never... Uh, rewritten in a way that both sides are happy with do you see what i'm saying and the reason yeah, i bring yeah. that up is because like you know what we've been talking a, a lot about um in this conversation and what gets talked a lot about in the book are like i think what's safe to say is you know auto ethnographic design is an alternative mode of practice right yep. by being alternative it's on the fringe uh and actually, just, I, I, I made a note in the book here of something you wrote. You say, the fringe is often where the action happens. And if design is to be transformed to engage with an increasingly stable world, then this transformation will occur not from the designer's central practices, but from its peripheries. Okay, fair enough. I, you know, I don't disagree with that. It's, it's always the case. Change always comes yep. Um, yep. often, not always, but often, often comes from the outside in. But here's my question. And I know... I know this isn't necessarily what the point of the book was, but I'm going to, since we're talking about it, I'm going to ask it yeah. anyway. Uh, how do you get from the edge to the center? How do you center? How do you think you, uh, what do you think needs to happen to center the, 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 the issues or the, the strengths of what we've been talking about today? You know, the, the value of autoethnography. How do you bring that from the periphery to the center? Because I, when I say center, I think client, I think, you know, receiver, Mm -hmm. for, lack, for lack of a better place to center something. How do you bring something into, so how do you bring this into the center is what I'm asking. Well, I, I think you bring the center to the periphery. And um, because the center, I, I think, I mean, Foucault, uh, he talks a lot about discipline and, and how we have like, you know, these disciplines at, at universities, you know, you study something and, and we, I find it really interesting, you know, and as Foucault says, like, you know, when we study, you know, anthropology, it's a discipline and that discipline disciplines and I think, you know, that's what we get in the center is that it, the center of something is, 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 is the, 
the reproduction of its own norms, its own values, constantly being circulated until basically it's unquestioned. And I don't know, I, I think it's very difficult to make it your way into the center. I think one way is to destabilize the center by creating a stronger periphery. And so that the center isn't able to reinforce itself so much without it becoming completely detached or completely unable to communicate with other forms. And, and so I think I, that's one, one of the reasons why we want to create this new terminology is to strengthen these positions on the fringes. And, and, and for us, one of them, and, and you're speaking explicitly in terms of like, you know, market or client oriented design, I struggle. And this is maybe very strange for so many people out there in the design world, but I struggle to think of design as being associated with the market or a client because I worked so much with a form of design that is outside of the market. And, and, and so for me, it's like, you're talking about these designers and that feeling of like, ta-da, you know, it's like, it's like having a dog on a leash and the dog feels really good when you tell him to sit and he sits well and the, and the, and the owner's like, bravo. And the dog's like, yes, I did it. Well, I would say, I mean, it's like, take, take the leash off the dog and let the dog run free. And I don't think once the dog experiences freedom, I don't think the dog needs to have that, uh, that, that congratulations or that feeling of satisfaction. I think design, it's a terrible analogy, but I think designers are, to some degree, kind of enslaved by this market client system where they're underpaid, under rewarded, and, and they're not, they're not seen because they're producing always for this externality and they're not given the space. And I think with the arts, especially within Europe, you're able to be an artist without pandering to the market by virtue of the fact that there's all these different grants, state grants, project grants that can subsidize your existence. And so I have a number of friends who are artists for 30, 40 years and have never had sold a piece of their work. And, and I think the same thing goes now with design is I see it a lot more where designers are making exclusively for, you know, non-market, non-client um, intentions. Um, they work in various communities. They, they, uh, they have different jobs, but design becomes something that is not a profession but it becomes something that's kind of an intrinsic value. And I think the last chapter of the book by Hisham Khalidi is so beautiful because he, and I find it challenging, is that, you know, here he is, he, he runs the, you know, the, the Jan van Eyck Academy, this great residency program, one of the best for art and design in Europe. And, and for him, you know, there's no, he doesn't see the professionalization. He's not there to value, to valorize whether someone's producing good design or good art. You know, he would ask them, is this good for you? And for him, you know, design is about designing a good life and art is about the art of good living. And so can we can we see design as having an intrinsic value, a value that that we we a value basically in, in making, in producing something? Um, you know, I, I, I've been working for the last few years on developing the concept of the right to design, which kind of deparochializes design. It takes design out of this. Out of, out, of the, out of the reliquary of the design field to say, you know, design is, is this intrinsic experience that we all are part of in expressing ourselves while at the same time finding ways to find, you know, to, 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 to change our world our, 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 through materiality. And, and, and that could be an individual or, or kind of an, a collective uh, mode of expression. And so I think your questions, I, I find them really challenging because I don't think about the client or the market very often. 
And when you take this book, I wonder how this book will sit within a North American audience. I, I think it is really weird and, and, and unnerving. And I think the immediate response from most people is, well, this isn't design anymore. It's just art because it, is, it sits so far outside of the market. And I think for most of us, we associate design as being, whether we like it or not, 100% embedded within, yeah, market clients um, kind of orientation. What do you think of, uh, of that? How would you respond, Peter? Well, I mean, I agree with you um, on, on several points, starting with the book itself. I think you're right that this book is unnerving to uh, a significant segment of the entrenched design industry. And I use those words specifically because, you know, the industry of design, it, it is a machine that works if all the gears are oiled properly and, and, and assembled properly and everything's moving in, a, in, a, in the same place or the same space, same speed, right? It, it basically, it only, the industry only works if everything is working towards itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of issues raised in the book that that undermine that 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 stability or that that uh, um, sort of uh, accepted mode of doing things. Um, I think, though, I mean, I think there's a few things going on here. One, um, that there's a lot to be said about what the purpose of design is uh, as it's taught to students. Mm-hmm. And students are, I mean, they're sponges. So, you know, there's so much can, can be uh, invested in changing the mindset of when you have that student in front of you and they're, they're saying, okay, what's this thing called design? What, what do I do with it? You have a op- golden opportunity there to shape a mind. But on the flip side, they are, they're not just listening to you. They're listening to you know, endless sources of uh, influence one of which is the, the world around them. And this world around us now is an interesting moment to be looking through uh, almost as a lens to be looking at these, these topics because we are in an increasingly unstable world and people crave stability. They crave predictability. And there's something predictable about the market, however fractured it is. And so... I, you know, I understand. I, I'm I'm on the same page as you, more or less, in terms of uh, looking, you know, sideways at, at the market, going this this isn't the answer necessarily. But I'm not sure how else to um, build a foundation, right? I'm not sure how else to where else to start to say, okay, we're going to start here, and then while we're here, change it while we're here. Now I know that didn't that was a lot of words that didn't really. <laughs> amount to much of what I just said, because what I'm trying not to have to do is to say, uh, <laughs> is to modify uh, um, uh, Churchill's favorite, uh, famous statement about democracy. You know, it's the the best yeah. government only because all the others are horrible, kind of thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I you know, I, I I hesitate to say the same thing about about the market. That you know, to to say to make a statement that it. It, it, it's a good starting point because there's where else are you going to start? I hesitate to do that, but I almost can't help but say it because that is what the question I'm left with. I'm left with, well, then how else do you, let, let me cut right to the chase, Michael. How else are you going to make a living, right? If you don't put your product to market, 
Let's well, start with that. Yeah, like yeah, a, des yeah. a designer's got to make a living. How if if the Knowles and Herman Millers of the world aren't exactly lining up to introduce uh, auto ethnography into their product, uh, that you know, then what? And I'm not saying that's the that's the the beginning of the domino effect of Armageddon, but I'm just saying, it, you know, designers got to make a living. Okay, yeah, I mean, okay. For, so first off, I mean, just for clarity's sake, for those listening, I mean, I don't see someone who does autoethnographic design as being their sole form of practice, and I, I think it's something that right. And I, I, I knew that, which is why I didn't even really want to have to go. I get, you know, I didn't want to go down yeah. that yeah. aisle okay. exactly, because like, so, I, so, I know but, it's it's not it's not in you know exclusive in and of it to itself. I know that, but exactly. But but I think but but the general question I think is really interesting one, which is simply what does it look like when we detach design from the market. And I think, but but I, uh, this is how we why we have to go more towards seeing design as something that is an intrinsic value. It's not. It's like deprofessionalizing something. It's like saying, you know, what would football be like if we deprofessionalized it and we played only afternoon and evening or on weekends? And those footballers would, um, you know, maybe be doctors, dentists, and, and lawyers. Basically, like the Icelandic team who made it to the quarterfinals in the World Cup. Was it the last World Cup? or the two World Cups ago, um, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, maybe maybe there would be changes. Maybe the quality would be a little different, but actually maybe the creativity would be a lot better. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see design needing essentially to be a profession. And, and, and thus I see it more as something that is an, really an intrinsic value. It's, it is part of who we are. We are homo faber. And, and because of that, I think we should expand it beyond the market. And the market, if anything, is doing more, much more harm than good because it limits it. It tells us what is good, what is not good design. It's defining that according to a market logic as opposed to a human logic. And I think that's a pretty big distinction between how the market valorizes something and how we valorize something. And, and so, I, I, I mean, for me, I, I, I think I, I see this kind of beautiful capacity and, and almost like this this you know, poetic humanism in design because it's really about us coming to terms with what it means to be human, which is we are humans that live a materialized life. And unfortunately, and it's interesting, is that you know, North America is particularly in the Anglo world in general um, is a lot more Gnostic uh, in the sense that there is this kind of distinction, this almost Cartesian distinction between the brain and the body. And, and, you know, we like to see things really intellectually without necessarily thinking about the kind of embodied elements of it. And, I, you know, I live in Italy and, and I, I see this big distinction where, the, you know, the body is this great, you know, source of knowledge and the material world is so important for people here. And I don't mean buying things. In fact, you know, living here, I'm always amazed how little people buy. Um, but it's about how we use things, how we maintain things, how we care for things. And, and, and so material, I really see it here is such a big part of understanding the self and understanding the world around us. And, and if we want to change that world, we change how we interact and how we use that material. Not that we buy something differently, but we actually shift what we have um, and, or we, we interact with it differently or we modify it in a new way. And so I guess I, what I'm kind of challenging is just that, that feeling of, of design, one being professional, and, and and two being yeah, design is something that we consume, 
even if it's not professional, but it's something that we are constantly reproducing. We're, we're not producing something ex nihilo out of nothing, you know? We're constantly interacting with objects in the material world and, 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 and transforming them, whether through new objects or adding things or subtracting things. And that's basically kind of what makes us human. It's how we evolved. And unfortunately, that's been now relegated to an elite class of, you know, 0.01% of the world now designs things and the rest of them uh, of us consume them. And that's limiting. That, that's de-skilling us, de-culturing us. And so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just running, running around in circles. I've not actually ever had to, for, like, you know, uh, ex explicitly describe how I would see that. But I... Uh, yeah, and, and, and in doing so, I guess with this vision then, Peter, um, you could say that, you know, this form of auto-ethnographic design is really about, yeah, it's, learn, it's learning about who we are as individuals and communities. And, and it's, it's a form of therapy, just as art therapy is, but it goes beyond that because you're producing objects which I think extend much further than the self because they resonate with others because we have shared experiences of the world. And so when I go back to that, that, you know, copper bowl from Thomas Nathan made of those little balls of clay, it resonates closely with him, but it resonates with all of us, I think, to some degree, because we all have similar or many of us have shared experiences of time. And no, I, I so understand. I, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And, and you know, you, you, you touched on a few key points there that are that I, I wish I had touched on earlier. I mean, I could I could hear myself stumbling while I was trying to put my put my thoughts together. But I think, I'm I'm in I'm in agreement with you. Like I I do see you know especially when when I got to the end of the book, I really did feel like I was like you know th this should be part of uh, the the syllabus of you know most major design schools because I think design students need to need to recenter, which isn't to say they need to be selfish. They you know I'm not saying they need to be self centered, but they need to recenter. They need to realize that the the client the market is not the end all be all um while it is uh, it is a useful tool it is one of many tools and this is one of many tools this is one, this this is a a thought process that is incredibly valuable i think in helping designers to realize that it's not just about uh what you know what we what we can sell but it is a lot about what resonates, what helps people, what changes people, starting with me. So if you are the locus, if you are the starting point, it's like, does this resonate with me? Why does it? Why doesn't it? Asking all those questions, the whole process we've spent quite a while talking about, uh, there, there's imminently beneficial things to come out of that. If it works in the market, great. That just means that you know you've you've hit on you've hit a nerve. You've done something that people are, are connecting to. If it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? It could mean it's worth rethinking. It could mean this was only for you. This is the most esoteric product ever made. Who knows? <laughs> and not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Although how you made it is worth thinking about. Did you have to cut down a whole forest to make one tree that only you like? Well, maybe you should rethink your process. Yeah. But ultimately, I think, you know, a, a, any form of examination, both internal and external, is is useful. And this is why I, I, when I was, I, I could feel myself listening to myself <laughs> bristling <laughs> at my own defense of the market is because I wasn't doing it right. I wasn't defending yeah. the market so much as I was saying, humans are social beings. We don't live in vacuums. 
And I think that humans as designers, so first of all, I agree 100% with you. We need to take design out of that rarefied strata and make it, you know, as many people designing as much as they can, you know, uh, popularize and democratize design. The more we can do that, the better. And I'm talking to a lot of uh, a lot of successful product designers who are very committed to that. They're like, you know, it, it's time to get it out of the, uh, the 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 fancy studio and let's let's get ev- let's let's make design part of uh, elementary school education. Yep. Yep. Um, I'm 100% behind that, right? So my point is that I agree with you on that point. Bring it down to that, democratize it, make it accessible to everyone. Don't make it something like uh, uh, you know the, the it, 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 it's, it's another form of a religion that only if you're an uh, indoctrinated member of the clergy do you have access to God kind of yeah, thing. No, yeah. no, it's, it's open to everybody. But, but once you do that, once you engage, share what you've, dis- what you've made, what you've discovered. You know, get people, get, get feedback. People are social beings. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is how we help each other. That's my point. This is all, all I'm sort of cycling around to. Is yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't want auto ethnographic design to be thought of as a purely vacuum sealed, hermetically only small groups of people on the fringes talking about it. I want everyone talking about it and everyone showing each other what they've done with this mm-hmm. newfound wisdom. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think that's the the. the... The critique that, that's commonly leveled at this type of design would be that it's navel gazing, and um, but maybe everyone should be looking at that same navel, and um, and so I also I agree. I mean I think that the concern is always that it's just so esoteric or so hyper specific or so personal that it doesn't communicate beyond that. But I think that's where that beautiful tradition of design comes in, which is that you know des- as a tradition, design has this culture of communication and. There is this, yeah, this tradition of material, of how to use material in specific ways and the tools and methods we use to develop uh, objects to communicate. And so I hope, I hope that, that that works. And a number of the, the projects in, in the book are, you know, do work, do communicate very well. But what doesn't communicate sometimes is the, the stories that go with them because, because the designers themselves are self-censoring because design is not normally, um, uh, it's just not, it's not typical for design to be so personal on that level. And, and so it's, uh, I, I think that's what needs to be made more explicit within design. Uh, it's just the, is the, is the, is the personal, the, the, those elements of, of research that come out. And I think it's lovely when you see a, you know, there's, this, there's these fences. I love this project. It's actually the project I've probably used the most to describe autoethnography is um, the fences by Billy Ernst. They're gorgeous fences. He designs these metal fences that are woven and, and tactile and malleable. You can crawl through them and, 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 and they're, they're gorgeous fences. I, I don't know how you could, you could use them for multiple things, you know, you know for um, festivals or various things to kind of crowd control. And... But the, the, the story behind it is really about dealing with what it's like to be, you know, gay in conservative South Africa and the binaries that exist, these big fences that run everywhere and how that seeds into people's minds and, and, and recreates, reproduces these divisions and, and barriers and binaries. And so he says, well, you know, he works on this, this, this distinction always between inside or outside and says, well, no, I'm just going to redesign the fence itself. 
And I think, you know, as, as an object, it works beautifully. It's, it's a lovely artifact. But as soon as you understand the, the message to it, wow, it just, it transforms it. But of course, in the design field, there's no space for that. There's rarely a space for that message and for the whole story, the narrative that comes with it. And I think that's what needs to come out. And the market, my worry is that the market then ends up, you know, capitalizing or marketing things like, um, you know, as we know, the market can metabolize anything, including exploitation, suffering, the fact that we have, you know, Che Guevara t-shirts and umbrellas, you know, you know proves the point. So I guess my, my concern is that this type of design, one is it often lacks the ability to communicate well uh, because of the design field itself already doesn't give it space. And two, that they are quite fragile projects and that the market can be, you know, pretty monstrous and, and can metabolize these for its own good. And so I suppose that that would be my, my concern. But I think, yeah, that, I think it's a good question. That, that's true, though. I mean, I think you, you touched on a good point there uh, that, you know, and it's, it's talked about a lot these days. But I think, you know, if if um, if engaging in uh, uh, an exercise that qualifies as auto ethnographic or something akin to it. But point is, if you engage in an exercise where you ask the questions, you, you self-examine, you get to know the uh the, uh the you know the, the sort of the the sources of of uh direction and thought and then unpack and examine those things more all, all of that exercise among many things that it helps does is it helps create a sense of or a, a, a level of empathy that you can then mm-hmm. engage with others on that same level you can go to a designer can can understand another designer and understand what their you know the, the the story of the fences. I think is a, a beautiful example of exactly that. The embedded story it, it does not necessarily resonate or or transmit very well unless someone is receptive to that story, and that comes yep. from their own level of self examination uh, and the empathy that comes from that. Um, yeah, I mean, like it, 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 that that uh, the, uh, clearly that that is a, a, a something we all need more of is a little more empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, I think, anyway, I think it's, a, I think it's a really fascinating uh, comment and question in terms of how the market can can possibly work with this type of design. And I, I, am not certain, and I'd be fascinated to see from your perspective. Uh, you know, looking at this, you know, in a year or two, coming back, circling back on this discussion to see if some of these types of projects are making making themselves felt and known within, say, a Canadian context and. And whether the design schools are more receptive to this type of thinking, as I think it is kind of more of a not a growing trend, but I think it's it's spreading. It's definitely spreading. It is. I mean, there's some permeability uh, growing on, you know, in what used to be pretty strong divisions between education, profession, uh, teacher, student, all those things. What used yeah. to be pretty staunchly separated is there's now a certain amount of porousness and permeability between those. Those, those silos and I think that there is a much more receptive audience to exploring these types of things so yeah, yeah I, I agree it would be interesting to see how much this has permeated in uh, a year or so um, and also I mean what I would be very curious to, to kind of cycle back and take a look at is uh, professionals who who have adopted this or acknowledge this and who are now being tapped as the educators um, mm. How much they're bringing into it, 
meaning by into into it, I mean into the into the uh, education sphere. Um, I think that that's going to have a lot to do with it. I think in the in the long run is uh, helping to seed uh, a, a new awareness in the design students about what you know how, where they fit into the equation. It's not just about client. It's not just about market, but it's it's a it's a bigger conversation than that. I feel I feel that's happening a bit already. I feel that the the ground is being fertilized for that, and now it's time to plant some seeds and to uh, and and to see what grows. Yeah, 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 yeah. I hope. I mean, <laughs> I would love to. Yeah, have this discussion again in a few years' time to see if what's if anything's changed and and my worry is always that you know the the system is is so solid uh well no, it's not so solid but it, there's so much depending on it to remain in place that uh things won't change but um yeah so we'll have to we'll have to carry on this discussion a few more uh, times in the coming decade agreed it'd be very yeah. very fascinating to start cycle back and sort of see how things are going yeah. so anyway let me just say thank you very much the book is fascinating I, as I already said, I recommend uh, not just to everyone read it, but you know, I think it would be a great addition to uh, design school syllabuses. The Autoethnographic Turn in Design, um, published by Valise. Uh, it's available now. You can find it bookstores or on Amazon. I encourage everyone to take a look, take a look for it. Michael, I want to say thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, as always i look forward to the next time we get to t unpack these uh, these these deeper ideas uh thank you peter as always yeah fascinating to to talk with you and uh yeah really really enjoyable so thank you very much thank you for joining us on this very special episode of bevel be sure to check out our other episodes as well as plenty of other great content at canadian interiors by visiting canadianinteriors.com where you can find our social media links and how to subscribe to the magazine. And of course, we encourage you to share Bevel with your networks. This is Peter Sobchak, and until next time, design listeners, we encourage you to make it good, make it clear, and make it count.